The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Cars and Culture. I'm former automotive news publisher Jason Stein in Detroit. There used to be a cloak around the mystical world of Formula One racing. Exotic tracks in the world's most idyllic locations, combined with the allure of celebrities and the planet's most talented drivers, made it a sport and a culture all its own. Monaco, Melbourne, Monza. For years, F1 lived behind a velvet rope inaccessible to most viewers. As one of the world's most popular sports, it thrived for a long time on that mystic notion, living in the mind of one man, the unique Bernie Ecclestone. As the former chief executive of the Formula One group, Bernie Ecclestone managed Formula One motor racing and controlled the commercial rights to the sport. He was commonly described in journalism circles as the F1 Supremo. His control of the sport included pioneering the sale of television rights in the late 1970s, but was chiefly financial. His companies also managed the administration, setup, and logistics of each Formula One Grand Prix, making him one of the richest men in the world. And under Bernie, F1 was a temple, guarded closely and carefully under his rules and his mandates. The glamorous drivers, strangely, couldn't even use their own social media accounts without Bernie's permission. And its commercial tentacles extended only as far as he would allow them. When Bernie was removed in 2017 following Liberty Media's acquisition of the F1 group, the ropes came down. I want Formula One to go up, 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 up. I want it to get better. And I'm happy if things are done that I didn't do and are improving the business. F1, that iconic behemoth of a sport, needed a marketing shot in the arm. Or at least, finally, a website that could be read on your phone. And the F1 world was not disappointed to see a new direction, as described by Red Bull boss Christian Horner, soon after Ecclestone left. He hates change. That was what I, you know, seen seen with him. Unless it's changed for a very good reason, and that reason usually means more cash. Mm -hmm. And so things like digital media and so on, he he just couldn't. Even though he's on Instagram, he won't admit it, but he's on it. Is he? Um, and uh, he just doesn't see a commercial revenue stream from it. And uh, maybe that's a generational thing. But you know, with Bernie, it was always black and white. It's what's the deal. And that goes right back to his early days in selling motorbike parts or second-hand cars, buying cheap, selling high. That's, that's really very much his motto. With the acquisition, Liberty Media went after one of the most creative minds in the business, hiring Sean Bratches of ESPN to turbocharge F1's image. And Bratches, who spent 27 years at ESPN, including 10 years as executive vice president of sales and marketing, created an icon out of Formula One racing. He knew nothing about the sport, but everything about igniting it and lowering the barriers. But even Sean Bratches couldn't have imagined Drive to Survive. These guys have an almost fighter pilot mentality, and that's what separates them from mere mortals. All I ever do is pray for a safe race. I never thought that I'd be there one day watching my son. That first season on Netflix, covering the 2018 World Championship, premiered on March 8, 2019. It lit the world on fire, delivering a behind-the-scenes view of F1. For a racing fan, it was the holy grail. Drama, personalities, speed, and conflict. Mostly, though, Drive to Survive put the fan right in the middle of some of the greatest storylines in sport. And they responded. By some estimates, Drive to Survive is the most popular TV series on Netflix now, ratcheting up the attention level of the sport tenfold. Most importantly, opening the doors and lifting the veil, with cameras in the paddock and the trailer. Conflicts became public, champions were front and center. Roll cameras. Oh. Action. Formula One is open for business again. Good morning. Two meters this year, though, you've got to keep your distance. The hype is there, the hope. The target for the season is to survive.
you almost accept that you're dead. Honestly, no. It cannot be the end. I'm the man that walked out of fire. When Ferrari and Mercedes opted out of season one, it allowed others the chance to step forward, creating a following for lesser-known owners, team principals, and drivers. And when Mercedes and Ferrari came in for season two, the show exploded. Today, Drive to Survive has widened the fan base for Formula One and made it a household sport, something unimaginable with certain demographics just years before. So what's the story behind the transformation of Formula One? And what are the real stories behind Drive to Survive? We talk to the show's driver today. I'm Sean Bratches, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. Well, Sean, welcome to the show. What a pleasure and an honor. How are you? Jason, it's, uh, it's a privilege to be on your show. Congratulations on all your successes. And, and uh, to your question, I'm doing famously. Thank you. All good. All good. Just Excellent. Re- recently back from the Ryder Cup. Good victory for the United States. Indeed. What was that scene like? Let's start there. It was, so I've been to a number of them. And uh, most recently, obviously, in at Whistling Straits, but uh, was in Paris, uh, was living in London at the time and took the train over for the weekend. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it is, it is having been to probably more sporting events than, you know, probably 99.8% of humanity, uh, you know, with my <laughs> close to three decades at ESPN and my Formula One career, I can tell you that the Ryder Cup is one of the more engaging, thrilling events to be to be a part of, um, you know, it's a it's a sport that is historically primarily constituted of, of individuals, of individual contributors competing against one another, and to see the golfers in this environment where there is, I would say, you know, competitive camaraderie uh, is really engaging. And the, you know, I got up, I think Saturday morning, I got up at 4:15 to be at the first tee, which typically is not a, you know, kind of a centricism of golf. Um, And, you know, in America, the the national anthem is being sung. I mean, it's, you know, the the cheering for the the American athletes and the the razzing of the Europeans, which is the exact inverse when it's in Europe, and it'll be in Rome in 2023. Right. So it's a a great event, uh, very engaging. And I think, you know, um, kind of align, aligned in many respects with the majors in my book uh, on the kind of the, the scene of golf. You've made a reference in the past to Formula One being uh, comparable only to the Olympics and to the World Cup in that it, it, it has that global presence. I would argue that the Ryder Cup, although not probably as uh, significant, is on the same level to some extent. And just given the, the, the frequency of it. Yeah, my comments about Formula One at Olympics and World Cup were really based around um, those being the only three truly go- global sports properties. So, you know, albeit Formula One happens every year in 21 countries across four continents, the Olympics happens once every four years, as does the World Cup, you know, in, in one country. So I think the, um, <clears throat> you know, the global nature of Formula One, particularly in the economy in which we exist and operate in today, I think is very well positioned from a commercial standpoint, from a fan standpoint. Now there's sports like soccer or football, depending on where you're from in the world that are larger in totality, but that's the aggregation of a mul- multiple entities like the Bundesliga, La Liga, Syria, League One, MLS, Premier League, etc. But Formula One is, is really global. And while I think the Ryder Cup certainly has global appeal, um, it only happens in on two continents, really, you know, America and then one European every two years. So I think it's um, it's slightly different, um, certainly, uh, you know, a little bit different demographics. But um, but 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 nonetheless, I think outside the majors, it you know, it it fights at that pay weight. I want to get into your ESPN career in a little bit, but let's start with a conversation that occurred recently that I uh, that I had with a colleague of mine, his 50 something wife was very excited that I was going to be talking to you. She watches drive to survive the minute that it's released every season. And then let me also share the same conversation with a 25 year old woman who I talked to who couldn't be a bigger fan of formula one because of drive to survive. 
When you think of that, Sean, isn't that the ultimate compliment to somebody who helped create it? Yeah, I think clearly it is. And, you know, the intention um, was to broaden the audience and really open up the aperture of the sport to, to new fans. And, you know, if you kind of, kind of reel this thing back and uh, to get some, give you some perspective on, on, on really, you know, how we got there was that in, I guess it was mid 2016, Greg Maffei initially, and then uh, Chase Carey had called me and uh, indicated that they were looking at acquiring Formula One and asked if I would move to London to you know, run the business side of the sport. Um, I needle them both because it was the biggest bait and switch in the world because <laughs> there was no business side to, to run. You know, Formula One was run out of Bernie Eccleston's house, which was a very nice house in central London. And he had, you know, for the most part, a handful of attorneys and a handful of accountants. So when I got there in very early 2017, um, not only, um, you know, was there no office space to, to go to, uh, there was no team. And as I was wandering the streets of London, trying to think, you know, where realizing the kind of the, the opportunity that was bestowed upon me, the privilege, really, um, I was kind of walking the streets of London, trying to figure out where I wanted to take this brand. And I think anybody that's in that, that circumstance, I think fundamentally has to ask the question, what do fans perceive of the brand? How do they perceive the brand? What are their, you know, emotive residences around it? Um, you know, you know how, how, what is the lens in terms of which they, they view it and ingest it? And not only was there no research department at Formula One, there was no research. So <laughs> and I, there was no marketing department. There was no strategy department, no sponsorship area, no, sponsorship. no media rights. There, there was nothing. I mean, it was an absolute clean. Incredible. Clean slate, and I think um, you know, it's Formula One acquired. Uh, I'm sorry, Liberty Media acquired Formula One for three primary reasons. One, it was a global brand, uh, had over half a billion fans and a decent balance sheet. Secondly, with the notion that technology is disintermediating the way consumers ingest video content, and that live sports was going to be the, really the last bastion of content that on a predictable basis can aggregate large audiences that can be monetized. And thirdly, to my point, is that the sport was, I guess, at, at best case, um, undermanaged, at worst case, mismanaged. So, you know, you have this, uh, this global sport that was really, I would say, surviving and I wouldn't say thriving, but, you know, they were doing, there were individuals that were doing quite well, but it certainly wasn't punching, you know, at, at its weight class. So I, you know, marched down to Shortage, um, where the Wyden and Kennedy offices were located. And Wyden was our agency of record at ESPN. And I needed to move quickly. Um, you know, the season was about to start in March. This was uh, this was January and uh, <clears throat> literally walked into the Wyden and Kennedy offices and retained them on the spot. And we did, you know, you can unpack this a little bit more, but we won't today. But um, we did a global brand study to understand um, how fans you know, perceive the sport. Uh, we went to four continents. Uh, we talked to 10 avid fans on each continent for seven hours over two days. Um, we, we compiled six focus groups on each continent comprised of 10 people, uh, one of avid fans, one of casual, one of you know, former fans, motorsport fans, spectacle fans, et cetera. We did online research um, in each continent and we did a body of semiotic analysis you know, across the globe going back 15 years. And what we did was we amassed reams and reams of data about you know, fans' perception of the sport. And we synthesized this down to a very small, tight brand book. Our mission statement came out of it, which was to unleash the, rape, the greatest racing spectacle on the planet. And the three key words are unleash, racing, and spectacle. And then we created five North Stars. Revel in the racing, breaking borders, um, putting the spectacular back into the spectacle, 
taste the oil and feel the blood boil. And these are the North stars that even today kind of, you know, kind of direct, you know, where we're, where the sport is taking the brand. But one in particular, um, Breaking Borders, was about the notion, Jason, that Formula One is perceived by fans as impenetrably exclusive. They can't touch it. You know, the Grand Prix are an hour outside the city. Um, you, you need to spend a lot of money to go to a Grand Prix. When you go to a Grand Prix, you have no access, uh, you know, other than a grandstand seat to the grid to the pit lane, to the garages, to the paddock, to the drivers, to the team principals. There was nothing. The broadcasts were suboptimal. You know, the, the aperture was wide open. The camera angles were, you know, distant uh, to get in sponsor logos. Uh, the sport was putting brands before fans. And so here I am. I, I'm looking at this notion of this impenetrably, you know, thick, cloak that where people cannot access the, the, the brand because of this exclusivity. And I felt that exclusivity was inherent in Formula One. You know, it was part of the brand DNA. But at the same time, I wanted to create seams in this in this cloak where fans can touch the brand, touch the feel the emotive. So started doing things like um, live car runs in city centers to bring the, you know, the visceral action and the, you know, the noise and the speed of the, of the Grand Prix or these cars to fans. So we did live car runs in, in Shanghai, LA, Chicago, Miami, Manhattan, Miami, right. Yeah. We didn't go to Manhattan. Uh, but uh, not that we didn't try, but we didn't, you know, London, um, Marseille, um, we rebuilt our digital, you know, there was no website at formula one when I arrived, um, and, you know, and I used to tell my team that if you don't laugh, you'll cry. So, you know, let's laugh. So we, we had to build a, a web platform. And in the, I guess at the time, it was the 78th year of Formula One history. No, I'm sorry, 68th 68, year. 68. 68th year. Um, we sold the first display ad in November of 2018. <laughs> it's which is, amazing. Which is amazing. You know, you had when, a non, you had a non-responsive uh, website on unresponsive i mean it, yeah. it just it just didn't have you, you you took what you described as the sears roebuck catalog and turned it into the internet in light speed right oh had to um and yeah. you know like i i started following you know formula one drivers teams uh in mid 2016 when i first got a call and you know i i had lunch with lewis hamilton who was the the rock star of the sport um, and in March of 2017, and I asked him, I said, Lewis, why aren't you posting anything that has, you know, any Formula One iconography on your social feeds? It's, it's eye candy. People would love it. And he literally put down a, a stack of cease and desist orders that Bernie had been sending him, you know, telling him to stop, you know, unless he's going to pay him for every, or he wanted payment for every post. But in any event, to, to back to your initial question is that, so I wanted to open up the sport and tell the story, you know, behind the story. Um, the only thing people could really see was a suboptimal production on television prior to Liberty's acquisition and or go to a Grand Prix, which was which was, you know, you didn't get much, much more access. So I had one I had, did a lot of things, but one of the ideas that I had was to try to create a series that would elevate and expose the sport, or, or, you know, the, the, the drivers, the teams, the, you know, the sport around the game, around the game, if you will. So a gentleman that used to work with me at ESPN was at Netflix, um, called him up, his name was Eric Barmack. And, you know, I, I took him through this body of research and what I had found explained that we were a global platform, that Netflix at the time had was starting to be global, but this was called five years ago. But, um, and I said, you know, this is great alignment. And this is an amazing opportunity to, um, you know, open up something that people are champing at the bit across the world to see. And it's a product that I think could, you know, help you reduce churn and drive subscriptions to your platform. So we relatively quickly negotiated a deal. Then it was incumbent upon me because of me and uh, a small team of individuals at, at Formula One 
because the way the sport is operated, we don't have the authority to make that decision on behalf of all the teams. And I think Formula One, Jason, is very different from many sports that we're accustomed to being fans of or viewing or, or understanding in as much as the 10 teams are consumer facing brands. You know, it's not like the, you know, the, the Rangers are playing the Bruins or Arsenal's playing Chelsea. I mean, this is Mercedes, it's Ferrari, it's Red Bull. Um, you know, 65% of Red Bull's gross impressions on a global basis come through Formula One. Mm-hmm. Ferrari's marketing budget at Formula One, it, it, it is Formula One. It's win Sunday, sell Monday. Um, and then, you know, Alpha Tori, which is a, which is a fashion brand. Then you've obviously got the Alfa Romeos, the Aston Martins, the Mercedes, the McLarens and such. So alignment is, is much more challenging in Formula One where, than you have in other sports. So I had to go out and really sell this vision, uh, which um, was interestingly received. Um, you know, what was um, the response, Sean? Um, I think it was it was varied. It was really trying to take, you know, what we were trying to do at the time, we were trying to take a motorsport company, a company that was focused on downforce, aerodynamics, engine technology, uh, suspension systems, material science, and evolve that into a global media and entertainment brand. That was a very different outlook for for, you know, the teams at at Formula One, where it was really this cauldron of self-interest and I was trying to evolve this to kind of, you know, kind of to fight on the level that it it was capable of if, you know, from a commercial standpoint, you know, we want the competition on the track, but we want everybody to elevate their helicopter and see a broader picture as it relates to the the brand and the commercialization. So um, we negotiated deals with eight of the 10 teams, and we were unable to do so with Mercedes and Ferrari. Uh, Mercedes at the time, uh, the reason that they didn't participate in year one was that they were, they had a deal, or they thought they did, with Amazon to do a documentary on the Mercedes team. And Amazon at the time said any participation in in a Netflix series would implode their deal. Um, That deal imploded on its own for, for various reasons. And Mercedes sat out year one. And I think Ferrari was, um, you know, it was at the time, it was a culture of no, what was the question? And it was just very difficult, you know, for them to participate in something, you know, of of this nature. So um, went off in year one. And I think it it was actually a good thing for the sport and for the series, because had Mercedes and Ferrari participated they would have taken all the air out of the out of, out of the room, I believe. And this gave opportunities for gentlemen like, uh, you know, Christian, Christian Horner uh, to really. Um, Gunther Steiner of Haas, who, Steiner who was really behind it and, and exposed an American company to the world. Uh, a bit of a behind the curtain. You, you had some incredible personalities that were now front and center. It wasn't just Lewis Hamilton and Sebastian Vettel. That, that's right. And um, yeah, Gunther was the unequivocal rock star of, of Netflix series the, the first couple of years. And um, I think it's actually disrupted his personal life because now he's a, you know, he's an outward, you know, star and he's got his own paparazzi following him. He, he was mobbed by fans in Australia of 19 on the start of year two, effectively the filming of year two, even Carlos Sainz cousin who manages Carlos was Carlos. mobbed and asked for selfies and, more, more importantly, though, it penetrated above and beyond the audience. You had pulled back. I want to go back to what you said earlier. It had pulled back the curtain, the veil, on a sport that nobody really quite understood the inner workings of. It was a, it was a, you had your own private camera in on these teams that you had heard so much about. Yeah, and it, it elevated personalities and um, that I think, um, you know, really have, you know, listen, I think. Formula One is in the third inning of, of a long game. And I think, you know, the opportunity for that brand um, is much higher than, you know, the opportunity is much greater than it is today. But I think, you know, its ascendancy is, um, you know, if they continue to focus on the fan and growing the sport and marketing the sport, I think, you know, I think the best days of Formula One are clearly 
in front of it. But you know, you look at the opportunities that Drive to Survive has presented, um, and I, I believe the teams actually have been have exploited the opportunity more than Formula One to date in terms of you know driving sponsorship and activating and and kind of engendering you know their own kind of their own fan bases, but. Um, and Mercedes and, and Ferrari took took part as of season two. And in fact, Total Wolf of Mercedes, who's been on this show, said that it, it's an angle that attracted a whole new audience that they couldn't have even anticipated. Uh, I think that's right. And I think everybody understands it now. And, you know, their, their momentum is. And I candidly, I think the importance of any of these initiatives is that all parties that are participating win. And I think Netflix has been a, a significant uh, benefactor of the program as well. And, you know, we had a, we didn't have a definitive deal going into year two. And as we were negotiating that, um, Netflix was proactively going to Barcelona to film preseason testing. And they'd film Melbourne, Bahrain and China before we had a deal. So while Netflix is not the most, uh, um, I would say generous with data and analytics, uh, you know, performance. I think, you know, we knew at the time that this was working for them as well. So, um, you know, it, it's worked famously. And I think they're, you know, I think they've, you know, season four is about where they're, they're continuing to film. I'm not, I can't recall exactly where they are in the cadence, but it's been a big success. And I'm well, and, and there are those who, who watch the Netflix world who claim that when season three came out, this year, that it was actually the number one television program on Netflix, which is just simply remarkable, given all the content that's out there. And, you know, Zach Brown of uh, McLaren called called the, the concept of Drive to Survive the single most important Formula One event in North America. And it goes back to my original line, the 50-somethings, the 20-somethings, it's now at a place where Americans especially say, I've never watched Formula One, but I'm never going to miss a Formula One race again. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, I think it's indicative of, of the success. And, um, you know, Zach is, is, you know, benefiting from that from a sponsorship, particularly in North America. Uh, television ratings are up significantly at ESPN. Uh, you know, the social media aspect of the sport, the, the dialogue of the sport, uh, you know, continues to grow. And, you know, to your point, you know, I mean, anecdotally, I can't tell you how many people, families, women, men, children, you know, that have never been exposed to it, um, you know, are, are actually avid fans and are, are kind of talking the talk. You know, I, I have four sons and, you know, I grew up and, uh, you know, as I was raising them, you know, we sat around a table every, you know, season, decided what sport they were going to participate you know, karting or motorsport, it, it's just, you know, it was never, never on the agenda. And I think for the most part, one of the interesting things about Formula One is that it is really a true spectator sport because, you know, you really can't drive in Formula. There's, there's 20 seats. It's, it's very limited. Um, and it, it's probably the, you know, the most spectator of, of sports that there is because it, you just don't have you know, youth leagues to the extent and breadth that you have, you know, uh, you know, football, cricket, lacrosse, you know, you know, basketball and things of that nature. So it's aspirational. Uh, the drivers that participate are, are true heroes. Uh, you know, they're driving on the precipice of, you know, greatness or peril every second. Uh, you know, these cars are engineering marvels, you know, we're in many motorsport uh, leagues, you know, it's really a driver series because all the cars are the same. In Formula One, it's it's one third driver, one third livery, one third engine. So, you know, there's engineering feats that come out of Formula One that are extraordinary. You know, Formula One right now probably has the most, not probably, has the most efficient engine on the planet relative to, um, you know, input versus output. And many people don't understand, you know, how you know, that the engineers in this sport are really in the pantheon of, 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 of business. You know, Formula One cars by regulation are not allowed to be refueled once the Grand Prix starts. And they don't give you anywhere near enough fuel to finish the race. So how does that work? So 
between, I think it's between 30 and 45% of the energy that propels these cars well over 200 miles an hour, 150 mile an hour, you know, through, through turns is generated from reharvested brake and exhaust heat. And the drivers and the teams have to manage that through the race. And, you know, there's so many different elements that um, are integrated into kind of the automotive business today that we take for granted that were developed in Formula One, um, you know, traction control, ABS brakes, paddle shifting, uh, rear view mirrors. Jackie Stewart once told me that seatbelts were developed as a safety feature in the sport. And I think a lot of the OEMs, you know, are in the sport to develop technologies that they impute into the tens of millions of cars that we drive today. So I think it, you know, it, it contributes on a much, much larger level and, you know, opening the opportunity for more people to get involved and understand, I think is, uh, is good for sport and, uh, and, and society. I want to go back to a couple of inside stories that most people might not know. So let's go back to Brazil of 2017, Sean, you had identified the producers who you wanted to be part of Drive to Survive. And they came from Box to Box Films, Paul Martin, James Gay Reese. Uh, James had done the uh, Senna film. So obviously he had a little bit of experience and had worked with Cristiano Ronaldo as well. But oh, they, 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 did, they did Amy, they did you know, Maradona. I mean, the, these two guys, not only being great guys, they're absolute rock stars in the world in which they, they play. But they knew nobody when they went to Brazil in 17, when the concept was, had been um, verified and hatched and was on its way, they're in the paddock looking around going, okay, well, how do we do this? And they, in fact, weren't even sure what they were going to do. That all came together really um, on the fly, if you will, if you, you know, pardon the pun. Yeah, I th listen, I th you know, we were creating something new. Um, you know, the, the culture at Formula One was very insular. Uh, it was very, you know, very standoff. You know, there was, you know, the, the, the rights that we had in the agreement, you know, from an editorial standpoint were, with Netflix were very limited, you know, outside uh, them capturing, you know, the flux capacitor or, or, or you know, whatever technology that, that might be deemed, you know, competitively advantageous to a team, which, which could be edited out. But um, I think there was some hesitancy uh, but at the same time, I think, uh, you know, I'm not going to say who, but there was a, a team principal that found out that Gunther Steiner was really elevating the series and his game and getting a lot of time. And this individual, this other team principal actually called Netflix directly and wanted them to come reshoot their piece because <laughs> competitive. So this is how competitive these, these teams are. And, you know, I also think that it's, you know, the, the structure of the sport, which is really a tri-party agreement between the 10 teams, Formula One and the FIA, it's a little bit, um, I would say, more Wild West than most sports that are a little bit more focused on, you know, the sports brand and little, I think they, they work in a little bit more harmony, at least outwardly so. In Formula One, there wasn't any hesitation to take the gloves off when the camera was in front, talking about other drivers, talking about other team principals, which related a degree of authenticity to the production. And once that started, and once team principals started, you know, hearing what other team principals said about them, they took the gloves off. It and, was on. and you have really good, you know, authentic content which you never had before and, and realized that the, you know, this was like setting off an atomic bomb, right? I mean, this, this, this went from, um, you know, very, very almost lip, no knowledge about what transpired behind this cloak to all of a sudden just ripping it, you know, ripping the bandaid off. And it, it turned out to be very exciting and exciting for everybody. And it didn't, didn't hurt that, you know, the drivers are all, you know, good looking, articulate, you know, heroes and the team principals all had a point of view. And you wanted to put those heroes, you, you, you really focused on the heroes of this sport because you believed that those are the ones who sell it. Let's, let's put a, a Lewis Hamilton or a Max Verstappen out front. 
but I, I'm guessing that they were even bigger heroes than you could have imagined once the cameras started rolling. No, I think that's right. And if you go back to the five North stars that we identified in this research study, you know, breaking borders was the kind of the broader notion, but taste the oil was about elevating the stories about the engineers. And this accomplished a degree of that. Uh, feel the blood boil was about, you know, kind of unmasking these athletes. I mean, I would sit in our motor home after the Grand Prix and, you know, Lewis or Verstappen or, you know, someone would win and they're walking around with their helmet on and I'm, you know, screaming at this, take your helmet, you know, we want to humanize these individuals, tell their, tell their stories. So I think the opportunity that Netflix presented, you know, hit the mark on at least three if not four of the North Stars that we were, you know, kind of focused on really activating to, um, you know, to bring this sport to a commercial life. And you mentioned just the cultivation of the storylines in 2019 in Hockenheim when Mercedes-Benz is celebrating its 125th years, its 125th year in motorsports. And it's a terrible day. It's a rainy day. Uh, Lewis has a bad day. They're, uh, you know, Toto Wolf is dressed in, in traditional uh, German attire, and it's disastrous. And that's something that Netflix could have never anticipated. I'm guessing you catch that on film, and you know that it's gold. Right, Sean? Well, that's what you get for not participating in year one. <laughs> <laughs> no, all, all, kidding, all kidding aside. Um, listen, you know, that's the story of sport. I mean, you know, sport is the original, you know, reality television and, uh, you know, things unfold and, and sometimes things, you know, cut your way and sometimes they, they don't. But, um, you know, Mercedes that day had a tough day, but, you know, they've obviously come back swinging and, and you know, won the constructors championship that year and Lewis won the drivers championship. So, uh, you know, it was I think it was good for the sport, although it was a bumpy day for our friends at, at, at Mercedes. But, you know, and you kind of go back, you never know what is going to work and what is not going to work. And, you know, we were, you know, we had an idea that the Netflix series was going to really, you know, punch hard. Um, not sure we, you know, we knew that it was going to be as successful and impactful, you know, as it was, but you never know, you know, when I was at ESPN and I think it was 1994, we had a marketing campaign that, you know, you think it's going to run for three or four months called this is sports center. And then you kind of come up with the next one, you know, this is sports center. Now I think it's in its 28th year. Yeah. And it's it, iconic. Yeah. It's iconic in many respects, you know, it defines the ESPN brand and differentiates the ESPN brand versus the marketplace. So I think, you know, Netflix, um, certainly under the, the production leadership of James and, and, and Paul uh, is poised for, for many more years of contribution to the sport. After the break, we'll hear more from former Formula One commercial boss, Sean Bratches. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein, former publisher of Automotive News, is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back into Cars and Culture. I'm former automotive news publisher Jason Stein in Detroit. Now back to my interview with Sean Bratches, the former Formula One commercial boss. Let's talk about your own history. You were a hard-nosed lacrosse midfielder who helped your school earn its first ever NCAA appearance in that sport. Uh, grew up in, and by the way, uh, you, is it all this on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> it's in the research department. Um, <laughs> but you know, you were, you were a tough, I mean, anybody who plays lacrosse, anybody who knows about the sport of lacrosse knows it is not easy, but I'm guessing that you, your pathway to ESPN was probably not one that you had anticipated. So how did you get there? So, you know, listen, I mean, it was interesting because when I was when I was at RIT was where I went to college and played lacrosse for Bill Tierney, who's uh, 
yeah, it was one of the, you know, my, my story of my career is better lucky than good. And, you know, Bill Tierney is one of the, the greatest lacrosse coaches that, you know, ever walked the sideline. But, you know, when I got to RIT, it was the first time I'd ever seen cable. And, you know, we had uh, ESPN and, and Sports Center in our, in our dorm. So I, my affinity to the brand, you know, began, you know, early in my, relatively early in my career. And after a short stint of selling advertising on the broadcast side, you know, I went to ESPN and uh, really just, you know, pounded on the door until I got in, spent close to three decades at the company, uh, had the most extraordinary professional experience there, um, you know, met and worked with, with great people. And I think really helped, you know, define and shaped and shape a, you know, a, a sector of the media business that, uh, that, you know, really thrived for, for a number of decades. How did ESPN change while you were there? I mean, it, it's certainly uh, the metamorphosis of this discrete broadcasting platform into a behemoth, ESPN zone, all kinds of other uh, uh, branches and limbs. But in your mind, when you reflect back, Sean, how, how did it really change? Or where did it really change? Well, I, th I think there, you know, I think there's there's two things that really took place. You know, one internal and, and one external. I think internally was the relentless focus on the sports fan and serving that fan um, better tomorrow than than we did today. And that was kind of our our, our mantra at the company. And we had a a can do culture um, that uh, you know was I think very aggressive in exploiting new opportunities. Um, you know, I wouldn't say we were on the bleeding edge, but you know, we, we were very close to it in terms of leveraging our brand to, in some respects, um, create new opportunities in the marketplace and in, in other respects, uh, validating um, you know, ascendant businesses. And then you know, things like the internet and wireless came along and you know, we, we took advantage of those. And then there were, you know, there were external factors. Um, you know, there was government regulation in the 84 Cable Act that, you know, created some stability for cable operators to, uh, to invest and grow. And we took advantage of that. Um, I think the NFL, the acquisition of the NFL very early in my tenure at the company was substantive to, to uh, create, you know, creating a powerful content um, uh, opportunity for consumers and, you know, which drove subscriptions. And then probably the biggest for ESPN was in the early nineties when direct TV and dish network launched with, you know, 500, a thousand channels and the cable industry had these 35 channel systems, which, you know, they in turn, um, you know, invested hundreds of billions of, of private capital, you know, in their business and needed content. And, you know, they would come to us to, um, you know, to fill up this shelf space and, you know, we start and, and candidly justify retail price increases. So we would launch ESPN2 and ESPN News and, you know, acquire Classic Sports Network from Brian Beadle and Steve Greenberg and turn it into ESPN Classic and let that ride. And, you know, the SEC Network on ESPN Deportes. So there were a number of factors that, you um, contributed to the growth, but I think um, in large part, we had a culture at the company that, uh, that you know, didn't know what we didn't know. And, we, you know, we just kept moving forward, understanding that, you know, if we worked together, uh, we were going to, we were going to be successful. And I think that that continues to this day. I'd be curious your perspective. And you mentioned this earlier, live sports can aggregate live audiences, which can be monetized. And here we spent the first part of this interview talking about Netflix and what Netflix has done from a viewing standpoint, viewership, and in truth is actually in, has had so much propulsion behind it that it's challenged now cable networks and, and, and over, over the air broadcast. So where does cable go in the future in your mind? In, in my mind, um, you know, I, I think the, I think the marketplace is going to move um, to more streaming options. Uh, you know, I think the ascendancy of streaming is going to continue. 
Um, you know, the cable marketplace has lost, you know, a quarter of its distribution called in the last, you know, five to 10 years, over 25 million homes. And I think the, you know, the notion of, uh, you know, what you want, when you want, on what device you want um, is kind of very germane to the, the consumer of today. Um, and I think the other, you know, genres outside of sports have kind of figured that out and, and tapped that marketplace. I think the, uh, the live nature of sport and the extraordinary economy that the cable model has underpinned the sports marketplace with has made it much more difficult to transition to direct to consumer. Uh, they haven't figured that out yet. And uh, I'm confident that there are many people spending many hours a day at, at many different sports networks trying to both in the national and the regional sense trying to figure that out um, even even as we speak because that is as material as that is as a material issue as there is in, in that particular marketplace going forward I mean you know if, if they don't figure it out I mean it, it affects team values it affects player compensation agents agent commissions I mean it, there's the cadence of uh of horribles, uh, you know, <laughs> is pretty, pretty broad. And you, you are not a petrol head. You, you said that when you showed up walking the streets of London, you, you said you were a guy who didn't know which way the cars were supposed to go around the track. But I want to ask you, having had your Formula One experience, where does Formula One go from here? Yeah, well, first, I mean, I, I, I've become an, an, I wouldn't say I'm a petrohead in the broadest sense, but I am an absolute avid Formula One fan now that I understand the sport. I mean, I, I used to um, not have great affinity to soccer, but now, you know, that I understand the sport, um, you know, I watch Premier League, you know, avidly every, every, every week play uh, Formula One fantasy, listen to the podcast. So I'm, uh, I am, I'm now the pig at breakfast, not, not, not the chicken. <laughs> as, as when I arrived, I am, I am absolutely committed. Um, listen, I think Formula One is, uh, as I said earlier, I think that the last, you know, three, four years under Liberty's management, the sport has, um, done phenomenal things, uh, on, on virtually every, um, every touch point. And I think it's incumbent to, you know, for Stefano Domenicali, who is a, um, you know, a beyond being just a, a really neat guy and, a, and, a, and someone I call a friend, but uh, an incredibly, you know, competent uh, leader in the automotive space, um, having spent time in Formula One, having spent time running Lamborghini, and I'm sure there's other things that he's done that I'm unaware of. But I think as long as they continue to, you know, focus on the consumer and um, and invest in the brand, um, you know, Formula One's got many, many years uh, of growth in front of it, and uh, they currently do. And I think they'll remain fighting with, the, you know, the the biggest, the best, and the brightest in the world of sport. When you got to Formula One and you realized that the cupboard was bare and that um, the, the bait and switch had occurred, you started to implement some significant pieces of the puzzle, the esports platform, the on-demand video service, Netflix. What are you most proud of? Um, I think I'm most proud of, of the team that I assembled uh, to manage the business when I was there. I mean, I would say that it, it is probably the most, it was, it was a professional gift walking into an entity and being able to um, look across, you know, kind of the array of, you know, once I had figured out where I wanted to take the brand, then it was, okay, what is the organizational structure I want to put in place? And then who are the individuals that I want to kind of run those businesses? And, you know, I was not, um, you know, in a position where I had incumbent individuals that, you know, had different agendas or, you know, this was really fresh. And, I likened it, probably a bad example, but I likened it to Barney's New York, where, you know, Barney's wouldn't take, and I'm getting over my skis on the fashion, but, you know, <laughs> Dolce and Gabbana, I think that's how you pronounce it. They wouldn't take their entire line, but they would take the, what they felt was the best edit. And I was able to go to the market and hire, you know, the best people that 
I knew in different disciplines and, um, you know, get them to work together like a Formula One team. And I think, you know, when I was there, uh, you know, we won every race we were in. We, we did, you know, we did famously on the, the commercial side, and, and I suspect that'll continue. You described it as managing a startup. It's one heck of a startup. And, <laughs> and, you, and, and you have put your, put your stamp on it for sure. Um, car culture, what are you a fan of on, a, on, the, on the personal level? What do you drive? So I have a, um, I have a, a 911 Targa, um, got a Panamera GTS, uh, I've got a, and then I've got a Ford Raptor. Um, I'm actually a very big Ford guy. Uh, so I think, you know, we've got, I've got a Ford Raptor and I've got three uh, Ford Expeditions. And uh, I think, I think that's it. They're all black. Uh, I'm just, I'm, I'm a big fan of black cars and that's what I drive. And are your sons fans of the sport as well? They are. Uh, my, uh, my oldest son actually runs the family um, uh, fantasy league. And, you know, it was interesting when I, uh, when I first brought them together to tell them that I was going to take this role at Formula One and uh, Reed, Todd, Jack and Clay, we were all in my office and, you know, it's funny as a parent, you know, for when you tell your kids something that you're going to be doing, you know, the first, you know, seven tenths of the first second, they're very elated for you. And then that pivots immediately to what does this mean for me? <laughs> right. and, uh, and so my, uh, my second son, Todd, first said, Dad, I'm coming to Monaco. <laughs> and, uh, and he did. And it was great. Uh, it was actually, um, you know, I had the opportunity to see the world, I think, in 20 in the, my last year there, I was in 29 different countries, most of them multiple times. My uh, sons were, and my, my bride of 31 years, uh, were all able to come to multiple Grand Prix. And, you know, we were able to enjoy that and, and some of the culture together. And, you know, listen, you know, five years ago, you know, with a gun to my head, I couldn't have come within putting my finger within a thousand miles of where Baku is on the map. And now <laughs> I've been there like five times, um, you know, at, at a Grand Prix and, and, and really, you know, enjoyed it and got to see places that I would never have seen otherwise. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for sharing your experience and the vision behind Drive to Survive. Jason, thank you. And congratulations on uh, all your successes. I'm a big, big fan of what you do. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Sean. Thanks to former Formula One commercial boss, Sean Bratches. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein in Detroit, and we'll see you down the road. Professor Barbara Kahn and Americus Reed talk about marketing and advertising trends, consumer behavior, building a brand, and more on Marketing Matters. Sirius XM Business Radio.